So we're going to do our own introductions today. I'm giving Andrea the uh, day off. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> uh, mostly because with the panel it's a little tricky. Oh, oh peer pressure didn't work. <laughs> Very close. It's fine. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for humoring us. The reason we want to cluster you together is because we do have an interactive feature. And it just means play, interacting with your cell phone or your laptop. You don't have to interact with us if you don't want to. But on the other hand, if you do, <laughs> yeah, definitely you can. we would encourage you to raise your hand. Visuals, <laughs> just let us know, but we really want to make it interactive. So I'll do a brief introduction, and I thought it would be interesting for some folks. Was anyone at this session last year? Okay, good. So, um, so the audience then uh, seemed to enjoy it, gave us positive feedback, and we wanted to offer it again, and it was supported by the administration here. So um, Dr. Bachkonia and I did the session together last year, and we both felt like, hey, you know, this is missing an element because truly when we're assessing people, we consider not just the physical aspects. We have to consider psychosocial aspects, and who better to do that with us than a mental health specialist who's uh, in behavioral medicine. So I'm Kate Schottmeyer. I'm a physical therapist at the San Francisco VA Healthcare System. My colleague Sarah Palio is a psychologist there. She's also the clinical director of a program we work in together. And Dr. Bachkonia is a uh, neurologist working in Seattle now. Yes. And um, so you can add more about yourselves if you like. <laughs> but neurologist, psychologist, physical therapist, that's the team that we have today. <clears throat> and we do need to say that uh, we don't have any financial disclosures, but it is important to know that there are two VA uh, clinicians here. I'm going to just go. Right. So nothing that we say can be taken as a, an official statement of the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. Sorry, I did that. Okay. <clears throat> okay. So um, we actually uh, going to uh, this made the introduction, uh, make this interactive, and we want to cover a very important topic of uh, the way we talk, the, uh, in particular defining diagnostic terms and terms that are relevant to mechanisms of pain. So that will be a part of the polling and part of our discussion. Because depending on how we talk, that's how we hear each other and how we communicate with, among ourselves with uh, colleagues and patients. Uh, so, and we, at least we'll try to um, uh, do at least the three basic mechanistic terms that are kind of now in a regular language that actually many patients will uh, kind of bring to us. So at least we as a community should have the same language and same understanding. Mm -hmm. And then um, we're also going to be talking about, you know, identifying behavioral and mental health issues that might be present in a patient that can influence clinical reasoning and treatment planning. And we're going to also describe what we call, what's called a transdisciplinary um, assessment as it relates to the formulation of a treatment plan for chronic pain. So we'll be describing that today as well. Mm -hmm. So I talked yesterday about multidisciplinary versus interdisciplinary, and there's a whole other thing called transdisciplinary. Right. <laughs> actually, it's an interesting concept, uh, transdisciplinary. And again, it's new. Uh, again, you can at least say you've heard it first time here. But it really refers to when we all uh, communicate, actually, we... Um, when we communicate among ourselves, we know what's going on with each patient. So we do not hold back. So for example, when a patient is talking to a physical therapist about n not sleeping and not feeling well, physical therapist or physician would not just drop it there, but would actually carry on discussion to facilitate when patient comes to talk to a psychologist or whoever else the person is. So it really crosses the disciplines. It's really encouraging 
communication, and most importantly, engagement to patients. Because many times patients, when they uh, communicate with each of us and they see the blank on our face, they, they get lost. But we don't want other patients to get lost. We want them to get engaged. And this is where this idea of transdisciplinary care comes in. In areas of medicine that's really um, strong is actually in the palliative care, um, cancer uh, care, uh, and now it should come to the pain care. Mm -hmm. So our objectives uh, are one thing, but the outline of what we're going to do today it looks a little like this. Uh, the theme in the very long title really just means, okay, you do an assessment. What, is, what do your findings mean? How does that inform your care plan? What do you do with that information, right? And so we're going to first talk about some common terms because, as was mentioned, it's important that we all have a good understanding of nomenclature and use the same terms in the same way. <laughs> and um, oh, we're hoping to explore how we each consider acute versus chronic pain and does that inform your care plan differently. Um, so that'll be woven through. We don't have specific slides on exactly that, but it will be woven through in some of the discussions. And then we, we will spend a bulk of the talk on clinical reasoning using a mechanism-based approach. So trying to think in terms of underlying mechanisms driving a pain condition and how those would present clinically and what you do with that. How do you treat that? Um, and what does your treatment look like depending on how you consider uh, primary mechanisms versus secondary mechanisms. And we do have a case example to tie this all together for you. Okay, audience discussion questions. This is not part of the live poll, but if you could just think about what your current framework is for understanding chronic pain, ideas might be biopsychosocial framework or neuromatrix framework or a mature organism model or anything else, gate control theory if that drives your practice more than anything else. What do you currently use? You don't have to discuss it unless that's interesting for you. Um, and also, how often do you consider pain mechanisms when evaluating your patients? The answer might be never. I don't even know what that term means, and that's okay. So we're just hoping to offer something um, very broad to get you started on thinking a little more uh, systematically in how you approach a complex case. And I'm going to turn it over to you. Yeah. Actually, just going back to this issue of pain mechanisms, uh, how many of you, I imagine all, you, all, all of you practice pain in some degree. I don't know how many of you are physicians, uh, nurses, who do have a direct uh, kind of bedside care versus <laughs> other forms of care. But one of the major points is to just think how complex this problem could be. Actually, in my practice, I did a little survey. Average number of pain diagnoses is they come with a low back pain. But once when I examine them, they have actually three pain diagnoses because I, when I start to examine and listen to the patient, they always, yeah, they present with a low back pain, but by the way, oh, yeah, I have a, a knee pain as well as migraine headaches. And all of those are pain problems that we'll have to address at some point. So this is where, where this idea of pain mechanisms and pain diagnoses being kind of part of something that we recognize right from the beginning to make a treatment plan, which is what Kate mm -hmm. just mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, I mean, that's, that's one aspect of it and we want to share with you. Mm -hmm. uh, the other is that we, none of us work alone. We work with all as a part of the team. Mm -hmm. And so we w work either in a small teams, even in a solo practice, you probably work within a community, uh, and all, especially if you're in any part of a team. So it's really important to, to uh, kind of make advantage, take advantage of this. So this is where this, what we talked about, transdisciplinary comes in, where we, how do we communicate, how do we make the best of it? And now our next question is, again, this is, these are the questions for you to think about and maybe share with us, mm -hmm. is also what are the barriers 
Mm -hmm. uh, and again, it could be personal barrier in terms I didn't realize type of barrier, or I couldn't do this because there's a wall next door or something like that. So mm -hmm. again, this is just the next couple of minutes. We can open this for you to either give your opinions, comments, or questions. We'd love to hear from audience members who are interested in sharing some of the barriers so we can start to integrate some of that in your work. Yeah. Insurance companies mm -hmm. cause big barriers for trying to get prior approval. And sometimes in writing a prior approval, it's almost like writing a book <laughs> and answering questions that are redundant yeah. and have nothing to do with what I am trying to do for the Mm. Insurance company, big barrier, just to get the pre-authorization to make sure a patient can go and not have a, an enormous bill to pay later. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Anyone else share that barrier? Mm -hmm. Any other barriers? Any other? I think probably uh, uh, lack of you know, professional knowledge and, and really working in, a, uh, in an environment of fear, if you will. And that fear comes out of a barrier being the access to knowledge or too much knowledge or uh, not knowledge not well communicated. Personally, not enough knowledge. Mm -hmm. It's such a broad topic and guidance is very not quite that specific. That's an excellent point. And going, going back to the, the, to the team, uh, again, it's a multidisciplinary, opinion is multidisciplinary discipline, so to say. And means it takes all of us to practice it, uh, as opposed to if you are hematologist, you can have or dermatologist, you can have your clinic and and, and practice ninety percent of it all by yourself. But pain ma management really requires a team building. So this is why knowing who in your community is a resource where you can identify and make it a virtual part of the team. But I, I was also hearing that um, it's also hard to find in your community those folks who may you know, be trained or at least have attended similar conferences or have a similar knowledge base, you know, not, you know, as a psychologist, I know that not all psychologists necessarily know about pain management mm -hmm. or not every physical therapist knows about management of chronic pain. Mm -hmm. um, and so finding those particular people and networking with them can be a challenge as well. Yeah. And I think the last point I, that I'd like to make, and then I'm happy to hear from others too, oh, it, it can be intimidating to try to find new people to network with. And it may be helpful to be able to speak their language, if you will. <laughs> you know, as a physical therapist, be able to know what a pain, a pain specialist would offer and, and could offer a patient and have terminology for that. So that that person, you get some signals to that other provider, hey, I'm going to take good care of your patients. They're going to be our patients, and I know what you do, and I'd love to share what I do. And that may be an opening uh, that you can create, but, you, but how do you get that knowledge of what other clinicians are doing? Mm -hmm. Because not all of us have the luxury of working within a really tight-knit group. And that's, I think, the majority of people working out there in the real world, where they, uh, you know, you're on your own, and you might make good partnerships. I was talking with Nick about some bridges that were forged there in his community. Uh, but, uh, you know, partly it may be being knowledgeable about what is done, even if you have knowledge gaps. It's a starting point. Yeah. yeah. I, 
think too to to go off of that is education. Mm -hmm. um, and and there's so many people in physical therapy, which is my profession too, that still practice on that. Oh yeah. And they don't understand the biopsychosocial. Yeah. And 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 much the same with with like primary care. And when you're in a big system like I am at the VA as well, you've got lots of providers that don't understand that. And then even leadership doesn't understand. Yeah. So you know, you've got to get buy-in from them yeah. to be able to form a team. And you also have to be able to find people who are willing to step up and and, mm -hmm. and, and reach out and try to help this group. Yeah. Oh, lots of All three went up at the same time. Meeny, meeny, miny, moe. How about first row to third row? I was just going to say, I, I work on a, an interdisciplinary team that you know, each discipline, minus psychology, truly does value the biopsychosocial model, but even within that team that has been practicing for decades, you know, in this program, um, I find that there's still this tendency to say, well, mm, that's, that's your discipline. Stay in your lane, right? <laughs> and even when you really do believe yeah. that, you know, on paper, this is what we should be doing and that we should ask each other questions. And truly, I, I attended your talk yesterday that, you know, my my decisions should inform yours and vice versa. Mm -hmm. That still is tricky. Agreed. Depending on, the mm -hmm. kitchen, depending on the situation. And I think we, I, we all can have a tendency to, uh, you know, not have the tough discussions sometimes. Mm -hmm. In, in the interest of the, the patient and, you know, mm -hmm. to, to keep the peace. And it can be a struggle, you know, even within the team. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm fortunate to work at the VA on the polytrauma team. And so we really do work as a team, but one of the, the barriers that I've found is getting the patient to accept us as a team. Hmm. And, and so a lot of times the patient doesn't want to work with that many different people. Interesting. You too. And what I, I'm going to kind of ping pong it for that because I'm outside of the VA system. So one of the biggest barriers is uh, sometimes client resources. Yeah. So thinking about where they come to see us, if they see the physician and OT and PT and, um, and uh, psychology, that's four separate co-pays yeah. and a gas. Yeah, and I hope that we can weave some of this in um, because part of what we tried to do last year together was show how even though we're separate disciplines, I as a physical therapist have a scope of practice that lets me do a very thorough physical exam. So that allows me to do things that maybe uh, you know someone who doesn't feel so confident might send out to a neurologist to do. Or I am very familiar with what my colleagues in psychology do, so if they don't have access to that, I can do some cognitive behavioral therapy components to my physical therapy plan. And you know, vice versa. There are ways that we can overlap without going outside of our scopes of practice. But the knowledge has to be there too. And I just think, Probably. like, as I hear everybody talking, I think we think team, we, we kind of get a, a, a certain idea of what that looks like. We either work in a similar place or we're named a certain team. Together we have team meetings. And I think that, of course, is the ideal when you, when you can have that. We're also going to talk a little bit today about if you, if you, if you don't have that, um, and what can you do to sort of kind of create your own teams in, in quotes, even if you're not formally, you know, kind of formed as a team at your facility. Mm -hmm. We're going to move on. Yes. <laughs> so just prefacing, how well do you know your pain science? The terminology is coming up next, so get your live poll button ready.
It's at the bottom of that app in our session. Join live poll. Here's right. the question. Here it is. So confidence in these. Terms. Oh, okay. Go ahead. No, no, do it. <laughs> so, um, so what you're going to do is for each of these terms, kind of quickly go through on your app. Um, how confident are you in understanding these terms? So just kind of pick them kind of quickly. Zero to ten. Zero is not at all confident. Ten is extremely confident. Uh, so kind of go, go through those quickly. What's your gut say? How confident are you? No, just the uh, first seven. It'll get through the one that says central sensitization, zero to ten, and then stop there. Ten is the most. Ten is the most. Ten is you're very confident. Yes, yes, yes. And hit submit. That way you will keep moving. We need. Yes. So there are seven terms, seven questions for this. Go through yeah. the first seven. Just keep going. Just submit seven, seven times. Yes. <laughs> and then we'll have results. Okay, yeah, go over there. Okay. So stop so, when you see pain definitions. Right. And then kind of look up like you've completed this task. All right, you look at, oh, that's good. Yes, I, I feel ready to move on. All right, let's go ahead and yeah. go ahead to the first one. Click, you can just click it, Kate. Yeah. I can? Yes, you can. Oh, I thought someone oh. in the back had to do it. No, you, you have the power, too. <laughs> Here we go. Come on back, buddy. All right, so how confident in nociceptive, the term nociceptive? Um, and, you know, not too bad. We've got sevens, we've got tens, looking pretty good there. All right. A little bit of a range. Next. No see plastic. A little bit more of a spread on that one, I can see. It's a new term. Yeah, we're going to talk so. about that one. Good, good. You've come to the right place then. All right, how are we doing with the next one? Descending inhibition. Kind of a mid, mid, in the middle there. Somewhat. Next one. Descending facilitation, again, kind of in the middle with these terms. All right. Well, good. We have, we have things to talk about. That's good. Peripheral sensitization, again, kind of, well, a little bit of a spread. Uh, a lot five. of fives, people. A lot are of fives. Non-committal. No. Yeah. <laughs> like you've heard it before, but Don't really wouldn't know. want to answer the question in class, right? <laughs> All right. Okay, now doing a little bit better with this one, central sensitization, very hot topic, so you've come across that one before, maybe. That's the last one. And that's the last one. Do you want to know? All right, we're going to okay. hold on to that. There's more polling. There's, There's more polling. More. Hold on to that. We'll come back around. So the next poll on your, on your little app, answer this, pain definition. So there should be four different questions that's to match. Right. <clears throat> You guys aren't doing it too. That's that's artificially that's inflating the number. Okay. I won't. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You could do it too. Do it. <laughs> I want to play. Okay. <laughs> oh no, I just lost one of the questions. Mm-hmm. 
All right, so stop when you uh, yeah. see something about light touch. And I see people ready looking like they're done. Go ahead. Anyone still working? Raise your hand high. Okay. <coughs> Actually, everyone's pretty, pretty done. Quick, pretty pretty done. quick with the previous slide, but it's now not. No, it's a real test. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm moving on. Answer is so the, the definition of pain. The currently internationally accepted de definition is here. Very well done. Excellent. Physical and emotional experience resulting from actual potential tissue damage are described in such terms. Uh, that's correct. And actually, the bold is actually what's the most people, not necessarily the correct answer. <laughs> so let's uh. see. The next was uh, nociceptive pain, uh, pain that mm -hmm. arises from actual potential damage of non-neural tissue. Mm -hmm. And guess, mm -hmm. we all got it. Very actually, good. Most of us. So um, trying to get good. Uh, and then uh, uh, next is uh, nociplastic. Uh, and it, although it's a new term, uh, looks like most of uh, two thirds got it. Says, uh, a third still confused. I think they could have been more confident on the original yeah. questions with that. Yes. That's good. <laughs> that kind of reflects that pain that arises from altered nociception, despite no clear evidence of actual or threatened tissue damage. Actually, this is the definition came out of need to describe uh, pain disorders such as fibromyalgia, where actually there's no tissue damage but there is all of the manifestations of chronic pain. Uh, and um, probably like a, many other, uh, my facial pain and some of the forms of chronic pain, uh, low back pain have these features. And could you just clarify the distinction between central sensitization and nociplastic and why those two terms are different? Uh, actually, well, they, the, the, it's kind of interesting that the most, talking to residents and fellows uh, and other clinicians, uh, the, basically, for the most part, uh, the, uh, it's identified as identical. Uh, on the other hand, nociplastic actually does have a component of peripheral sensitization, and, uh, uh, where actually central sensitization refers to the pathophysiological mechanism that occur in a spinal cord and brain, but primarily in spinal cord, where there are phenomena such as uh, 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 the uh, uh, wind-up and uh, loss of descending inhibition and uh, all those terms that were actually uh, uh, listed uh, previously. So um, would you have add to add anything? Well, I just think there's some, some common confusion that central sensitization for a while has been uh, used as an equivalent term to chronic pain, which is not accurate physiologically or true in terms of how we treat chronic pain, because central sensitization is a natural process that happens in acute pain conditions, and it resolves, right? Correct. So yeah, it's, an, it's not a one-way street. It does, it is, a, if you would want to say it's reversible, it mm -hmm. could be uh, tampered down. Yes. Yeah, it's like if your house gets broken into, it's natural to increase the alarm system for a little bit until you get more comfortable again. <laughs> okay, next poll slide. We have one more, and then we're going to... Neuropathic. Oh, pain, thanks. Pain that arises from lesion or disease of some of the sensory system. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk more about how to uh, not only define neuropathic pain, but also how to examine it. That's coming up. Simple, yes. 
don't be scared. Yes. All right, live, live poll, one more before we move on to more slides. So think about what you use clinically to test your patients in whatever setting you work if you are doing physical examinations on folks. So I understand the behavioral health people may not answer this, but it would be interesting to know whether you even are familiar with the terms and how these things get tested. And the survey says... Are we ready? Everyone done? Who is not done? Raise your hands. Thank you. I'm not going to do mine. Okay, I'll give you five seconds. <laughs> okay. So what's true about nociception? A good chunk of you got that right. So it's very important to understand this one in the middle. Nociception is not required for pain. And it's not always present in pain conditions or pain states. Would, would That's it, why the definition of pain includes actual or potential tissue damage. And yeah. actually important distinction between the nociception and pain. Nociception is what happens within your nervous system uh, until it reaches the brain. Uh, and actually when it's perceived as, uh, as uh, disagreeable, uh, unpleasant experience. But pain is only when the person says, ouch. <laughs> uh, and when person localizes it. So pain is uh, uh, solely human uh, manifestation of the, the disagree disagreeable process. So what we study in animals is nociception, not the pain. Unfortunately, for non-communicating uh, people, like uh, neonates, ch small children, and uh, phasic and uh, cognitively impaired uh, 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 adults, there's a pro problem in uh, communicating that. So that's why there's a whole uh, science of how to assess pain in, in those patient populations. And last comment, because of uh, something called the neuromatrix, the way that different neurons in various regions of the brain get used to firing at the same time, triggered by one singular thing, that cascade of neural firing can result in a pain experience even if there's no mechanical input at all, or thermal input, or chemical change in the body parts. There's an interesting study out of Japan. It's not referenced for you here, but email me if you want it. Uh, 2010, these researchers were able to show that people with a chronic back pain history could just look at a picture of someone bending over and cause their back to hurt. They're laying in an fMRI suite, so they're not doing anything with their back, but one moment to the next, that visual input causes pain. That's not nociception. So, interesting. All right, so we're going to talk about a patient case. Reorient towards the content here. I'm going to uh, give you a brief history in part, and then Sarah will give uh, the next bit, Dr. Palio. So we, uh, we worked with a patient who was 45 at the time, and he had these diagnoses. So he had a fairly complex picture by some people's standards. We were joking, for us, this is a simple case. <laughs> because he only had a short problem list, right? Yeah. But chronic low back pain, and partly um, that may not be entirely accurate. This person got a lot of health care outside of our system, so sure. we couldn't have access to all the records. But fibromyalgia was clearly diagnosed, chronic low back pain, sleep apnea, um, and peripheral nerve disease, and a few other things, GI, GI upset, so you've heard at this conference already, this constellation of symptoms that tend to go together. Keep that in mind. We did not have any mental diagnoses, uh, mental health diagnoses on file. And what's important to know about this case is that when, at the time we saw him, he had been severely impaired by his chronic low back pain for about a year because of one incident. He picked up a piece of paper. Now he had a long history in his adulthood of living with episodic back pain, very common report, but he considered it non-problematic. And what we find curious too is despite reporting to our team that it was not a problem, 
comes and goes, comes and goes, wasn't worried about it, he still had spine surgery related to that pain. So in his mind, it was a fixed problem because he had done well afterwards. And then bending over to pick up a piece of paper, everything changed. His pain did not go away, and he became uh, very different. And he also reported uh, foot drop, the self-reported foot drop, uh, but his EMG was normal. Uh, and he had tried a lot of different treatments prior to coming to see us. A lot of focus on doing core strengthening and exercises, walking, heat, ice, physical therapy, TENS, had reported that he went to psychiatry for pain at some point. Uh, and had a series of um, pain procedures about every three to four months that helped uh, but didn't really last. And so that's, you know, he had tried quite a few things. Yeah, sound familiar? <laughs> yes. Right. right, so when we think categorically, Dr. Bachkania is going to go over the next. So group we of have already mentioned, reviewed these terms, and just to kind of go over in most general, more defined terms, what these uh, uh, terms like nociceptive refer to is basically uh, pain that's characterized by mechanical sensitivity uh, that's reproducible. Uh, and you can always think in terms of a, uh, like inflamed appendix or broken bone or uh, acute burn. Uh, and there's always inflammatory components, sometimes ischemic. And uh, exposure to heat actually uh, leads to increased uh, pain or immunosensitivity itself. And it frequently it's localized. So a person sometimes poorly localized, like in case of visceral pain or, or like low back pain. But it's, it's a, again, if it's nociceptive, certainly. Uh, as opposed to peripheral neuropathic, where there's actually evidence of uh, nerve damage. And uh, uh, most frequently uh, in modern life, it's, it's a trauma of sort in different parts of the world. It could be infections. Uh, and some of the diseases, actually metabolic diseases, can cause peripheral neuropathic, like diabetic neuropathy. And um, uh, there are actually an interesting uh, combination of, of what patients experience. Uh, on one san uh, side, loss of sensation, they feel like feels dead, but it hurts at the same time, which is mm -hmm. a lot of time making people like, am I going crazy? Uh, and uh, so uh, in the, the, the patients experience what's called uh, paroxysms, where uh, most the best example of proxismal pain, meaning the pain that comes as an attack, is tergeminal neuralgia. Uh, but that's frequently seen in other uh, types of neuropathic pain. And uh, there's also sensitivity to cold, in particular like chemotherapy-induced neuropathy uh, and also post-stroke pain, where patients are extremely sensitive to uh, ex uh, the exposure to pain. And then the, the nearest kid on the block is nociplastic pain, where uh, the characteristics is one of wider pain, poorly localized, uh, and uh, uh, again, there are also flare-ups uh, as well. Uh, and again, this is a very important term uh, because patients with non-cancer pain do not have a breakthrough pain. Some, that word is actually heard less often now, uh, but at the time of early push of opioids uh, 10 years ago, there was a favorite word. But actually, most patients who do, actually all patients who do not have a cancer have a flare-ups. And flare-ups are not treated with pills or injections. They're treated with non-pharmacological means and methods, and we'll refer to that later on. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, then um, the, one of the characteristics of uh, nociplastic pain is it, it frequently it's under influence of uh, the context in terms of either social factors or psychological. And uh, like such in the case of fibromyalgia, 
in one of the criteria is the presence of sleep and mood disturbance. Mm -hmm. So it would be up to people like me and Dr. Palio and any other person on the care team asking those questions. What do you notice about your pain when your mood is low? What do you notice about your pain when you haven't slept well? Is there a connection? Those are simple questions to ask inside our scope of practice, definitely inside yours, yes. but it's not always in a comfort zone. So how would we start to put together the categories in our minds through an interview with somebody and then a physical exam? These are some ways. What do you notice when your mood is low? Does that affect your pain? And clinically, what you might often see is with a nociceptive type picture, they'll say, yeah, every time I do this, it hurts, each and every time. It's reliable, it's predictable, they know versus nociplastic, common phrase that you'll hear, pain has a mind of its own. And asking about flare-ups is another really important factor um, in your assessment to help you feel out what of these, which of these may be primary, and all of them might be equally weighted in your clinical assessment, but to start asking different questions is, is an important thing to consider. It doesn't matter what realm you work in, these kinds of questions would be helpful to guide a treatment plan, even if you're a social worker or a case manager, you know, how do you find the right person for the job? Um, if you're not thinking categorically, it might be harder. And within these smaller categories, we have to also consider that we're working in the overarching biopsychosocial framework, um, that's you. Sorry, that's right. Because we all think that way. We all think that yeah. way. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, right. So everything within the biopsychosocial framework, all those different pieces, parts, and we'll actually go to the next slide and we'll take a look. Um, of course, we always say biopsychosocial, right? And um, but really, in, in, in any given patient case that you're you're reviewing, you're working with. The bio can be, have a slightly larger part, the, or, or, or the social or the psycho, psych, psychological part uh, can be bigger at, at certain times. Um, and that's, you know, across patients it can be different, but it also can change for a patient over time as well. And so we have to be thinking about it. Just because we say biopsychosocial does not necessarily mean that those are weighted in a, in a certain way. You have to be aware that they're all kind of playing together. And also change over time. They can change over time. Absolutely. Okay. So we're preparing to think about the clinical exam and live poll time again. Oh boy. Am I just losing it? Okay, so think about your confidence in testing these things in the clinic. Even if you don't do, do you think I should do? Or if other people do, what does that mean? What are they doing? Do these terms seem familiar or not? Very familiar or not very familiar? So eight different questions in the live poll feature. Last one is hyperalgesias. Don't go past that one. Yeah, they're still thinking. Yeah. It's a lot of homework. <laughs> Show of hands, who's still working? Okay. And survey says? Two people still finishing. Oh, oh sorry. It's all right. <laughs> 
okay. I'm going to go ahead and advance. Because if you're on the last questions, we can catch up with the first questions. So testing light touch. Very mixed. <laughs> Very mixed. Only a third are really confident in that. Okay, we're going to talk about that. Confidence in testing a pinprick or punctate. Also pretty good spreads. Yeah, a little higher distribution on the more confident end. Are you getting pictures of these? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's good. Better. Oh, he got the smaller screen. Yeah. All right. So deep pressure. This is something where we're on the lower end of confidence scales for some of you. Okay. And interestingly, that's easier than you think. <laughs> yes. Temperature. Mm. I know. I know. Also easy. You need no fancy gadgets for this. We'll get there. Vibration. Might need one fancy gadget for this. <laughs> Not too expensive though. Okay. Few people very confident about that. And two point discrimination. This is uh, what I would consider an add-on in part of your physical exam. Not, not necessary for clinically informing um, a treatment category or a cluster of treatments you might consider but can be very informative and useful in treatment planning and delivery of different interventions on sensory discrimination. So allodynia, is that new? Yeah? yeah um, right. Assessing allodynia, how confident are we? Pretty confident. Yeah, looks good. Hyperalgesia, same in the upper third. And we'll get to the testing. So, um, who, who, anyone want to offer the difference between hyperalgesia and allodynia? Allodynia is, is, is experiencing pain without a painful stimulus. Okay, very good. Example? Like a light touch of a Q-tip or a, a feather. Cotton swab. Cotton ball or something. Right, great. Another common experience is sunburn. You put a shirt and that hurts. Yeah. That's Allodynia. But if you go and step in a hot shower and it hurts. Well, that's, that's, that's hyperalgesia. Yeah. So, so it's like, it's like different, the, the distinction. But actually, physiologically, there's an important difference because in light touch, you're stimulating a beta fibers, which are a fiber type that does not convey uh, uh, nociception. Yeah. And it's not noxious. Yeah. But now, because of the uh, peripheral sensitization, in particular central sensitization, the, now the, that stimulus is interpreted as pain. So that's allodynia. What's the difference between um, testing for light touch and for allodynia? It's the same thing. Same thing, okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, easiest way that I think of doing it in the clinic is to just do a, a brush stroke or a finger stroke. If you have a cotton swab, that works too. And if you do that and the person says, ouch, and here's a, here's a little tip that might be helpful in guiding your clinical treatment or clinical assessment. If you ask, can you feel this, followed by, what does it feel like? Actually, there's a little bit of a story, a little story uh, from VA, another VA hospital in Madison, Wisconsin, where actually uh, I was invited by the primary care team to help them uh, uh, learn about the uh, um, neuropathic pain. And this was like almost a decade and a half ago. And... Uh, there's a little tool called uh, ID Pain, which is basically six questions 
Uh, it's actually published uh, a questionnaire that has a yes or no, uh, uh, answers a yes or no. So patients can answer it literally under a minute. So the tra staff was trained, um, the, like nursing uh, the MA staff and nursing staff were, uh, uh, learned actually to administer ID pain for anybody who has a pain rating of four. So uh, if a pain rating of two or higher on ID pain uh, is an indication of neuropathic pain, then a clinician, be it the resident or a fellow nurse practitioner, nurses who do exam, will have actually uh, two tools, cotton tip applicator, which has a wooden part and a uh, cotton part, and tuning fork. And they test, they can test four modalities. With the cotton tip, it's a light brush. With the wooden part, it's a punctate, which is similar to pinprick. Uh, the vibration, with vibrating a tuning fork, and the head of the tuning fork is cold, so you can test the temperature. Mm -hmm. So, and you can imagine, it takes only less than a minute to do the testing, but provides the clinician confidence that that patient has a neuropathic pain because they had a, they're positive on ID pain, they have a sensory abnormality, it's indicative of either sensory loss or allodynia and hyperalgesia. That's all you need, and actually that's required for diagnosis of neuropathic pain. So what are the implications? Like why do you want to make a diagnosis of neuropathic pain? Well, there are two implications. One is diagnostic. If you have somebody with neuropathic pain, first question is, why do they have it? And most common uh, in this country is uh, the, uh, glucose intolerance, and the patient develops small fiber neuropathy. So you would test for glucose, uh, hemoglobin A1C, a thyroid function test, uh, B12, and folate. So you have diagnostic steps that can really help the many patients to rule out what's called reversible causes of neuropathy, number one. Number two, there is a therapeutic implication. The neuropathic pain is, is treated with neuropathic pain medications, not with opioids. So that was <laughs> welcomed by, by the clinicians. Now they can talk about how do we treat the neuropathic pain, the secular antidepressants, gabapentin, and those kind of medications. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So again, a couple of simple steps that take only a short period of time if you just get trained to do that mm -hmm. and makes a big differential uh, difference. And as a physical therapist, it's an opportunity for reassurance because people come into my office really worried, concerned about back pain and leg pain, and they don't believe someone who said their MRI is fine or don't be scared about that, right? But if I do a thorough physical exam and say, look, see, I tested these five different things that your nerves are supposed to tell your brain about, and they got them right every time. So that means the nerves from your back to your legs are doing okay. Let's talk about the pain now. And what do we do about that? Right. Right. Very simple things. So these tools, probably more than you need. The thumb is just to demonstrate you could also do pressure testing with your finger. Depress your thumb into somebody's leg enough to blanch your own fingertip. That's enough pressure for the sensory system to have registered if there is no area that's insensate or not functioning. Two-point discrimination. Um, I can talk about that. I didn't include a picture of a tool that might be used there. There are various forms for that tool. Some look like calipers with a sliding end, and others look like a like a pinwheel. <laughs> and there are some normative values that are to be taken with a grain of salt. This is a little more advanced and something that we could talk about later if there's time, if you're interested. But it's not required for a basic and thorough neurological screen. I think my slide pages got out of order here. There, we're good. Another okay. Oh, it's another poll. I think this is, uh, this is yeah. So one more poll. Get the get your poll going here. So this is um, to consider nociceptive pain, which are likely present. <coughs> Take a look. You can choose multiple ones. 
That's a hint. Heat increases pain, like an application of a hot pack. Predictable pain provoked with specific <coughs> factors like bending. Pain is out of proportion to activity. Localized, allodynia present, hyperalgesia present. Okay, you guys got that one done? All right. You want to? Yeah. We're going to just go right ahead. <laughs> See how you did. All right, so those are the answers. How did you do? Let's see. Good amount of people, heat increases pain, Predict, predicted pain provoked with specific factors, and localized. All right, good. Okay. And we have one more. Um, yeah. You want to do this one? Sure. We'll take that one? So what would you expect uh, to be present in neuropathic pain? How well were you listening a moment ago is the question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And this is multiple, multiple answers. <laughs> okay. Everybody ready? Wait another minute. We got it? All right. How'd you do? What do you think? Yes, it's, it, there is a loss of sensation, and the triggers are unpredictable. Uh, it actually increase, uh, is usually due to uh, exposure to uh, cold rather than heat, although some of the patients with certain forms of hyperalgesia, uh, the heat hyperalgesia would have this. Allodynia is definitely a hyperalgesia part for a course of neuropathic pain. Okay, so we're going to bring it back to the human component because we talked a lot about peripheral nervous system elements for a few slides. I find it particularly important to consider these questions. Uh, Louis Gifford uh, published a couple of great books. If you're not familiar with his work, he was way ahead of his time. These are great, simple books to read, aches and pains. But he was a clinician in my profession who did uh, tremendous work in trying to really bring this comprehensive look uh, the whole human into the office, into the clinic, into your clinical assessment. So not that you have to ask these questions or expect your patients to ask these questions directly of you, but I would certainly encourage you to be thinking in the back of your mind throughout the first or second visit, did you answer these for the patient implicitly or explicitly? Because whether they say it or not, they're in your office because they want to know why they still hurt, right? And they may not say it, or they may tell you that they were told five different reasons for their pain, or they were told two reasons that really concern them. And these are ways you can start to um, treat and really make some progress with someone if you, if you have a conversation. But if you don't ever approach that, it might be um, a lost opportunity. And we're dealing with chronic pain. Not everybody's comfortable giving some sort of time frame or prognosis for recovery. Um, and that's not the, within the scope of this talk, but it is something to keep in mind. Uh, and I've had to adjust my framework as a physical therapist. I'll say um, there are a couple that I know of in the room, but typical courses of care for, chronic, for any pain problem with physical therapy is six to eight weeks, right? Unless it's post-op and it's two times a week for six weeks and then we'll reassess. It's very common and that's often what insurance will pay for. And that does not apply to chronic pain. I work with my individual patients once a month for 12 or 16 months before they're discharged from my care. 
So it's a very different model of care. Understanding the problem of chronic pain means that our, our treatment regimen needs to be different too. And that's where I think we have an opportunity to advocate for ourselves and our profession and try to lobby those insurance companies to help them understand what it is we're asking for and why. Having some sound clinical reasoning may help you start with that. And I just want to bring it back to what was mentioned earlier, actually, about teams. Kind of, you know, patients getting adjusted to these different ideas about what treatment looks like, what the team looks like, what the interaction with the team's going to be like. I know that was mentioned earlier. Um, that's all of that swirling around in the room when you're when you're doing these assessments. Mm -hmm. So, what about an assessment? What does that look like? Basic assessment should include a lot of different elements. Um, and definitely, uh, one of the things that always kind of comes up is, uh, and at least in my, my way of looking at the, how the patient's uh, pain trajectory evolves, is really the way and how pain started. And uh, like a lot of times patients say, well, they had an accident. Well, there's a big difference if you had a fender bender as opposed to if uh, somebody died and a uh, person ended up in, in himself uh, in, in intensive care unit because all the bones are broken and the brain trauma has happened. So there are many aspects of it. It's, it's not that just, yeah, there was a car accident and I have no neck pain or back pain. Uh, and that's actually it has a significant impact uh, in, in a way that the whole pain uh, evolves. And there are a number of factors, uh, everything from physical factors we talked about, touching of the shirt to all the way to different uh, physical forces. There are also other forces such as uh, psychological and uh, social environment mm -hmm. uh, that can uh, create either of environment that when pain is worse or actually be alleviating factors. And uh, again, that kind of can manifest uh, in terms of flare-ups, as, as we mentioned. Uh, and uh, one way to approach assessing patients about the flare-ups is to uh, I kind of ask them, at the worst, what's your pain? And that frequently points to the fact that, yeah, this person has a, episodes of a bad pain twice a week. It's very different as a person who has a five times a day. Uh, and uh, it really going back to the, our original idea that this really becomes a part of the treatment planning, mm -hmm. it's very different. Mm -hmm. um, and regarding uh, flare-up management, again, this is not a part of it, the whole discussion in itself, but something as simple as teaching patients deep breathing. Uh, and we'll talk about the catastrophizing as in one of the aggravating factors. Uh, it's just for a person to be able to calm and just learning to do the abdominal breathing slow and deep can really make a, a patient turn the corner. Uh, it, they don't have to have a panic attacks to uh, know that skill, but something as simple as that could be an important factor rather than reaching for a pill, mm -hmm. uh, another like a 15 to Tylenol or 36th uh, ibuprofen. Um, and so, and also it's important to know what's the effect of the past treatments, mm -hmm. either in a good sense, positive effects or negative effects. I'm going to harp on the flare-up uh, question just a little more because in treatment this matters a great deal in terms of prognosis. And what are you going to tell your patients? How long will it take for me to get better or feel better or do more despite pain? And I have this conversation all the time. We all do. Where we work, we talk about the treatment goals are first to get control of the flare-ups, the disruptive flare-ups, those things that keep you from doing what you had on your agenda or those social activities that you wanted to engage in. Because most of that that we see, the withdrawal <laughs> from social activities, has to do with the inability to predict flare-ups. So they just don't commit, right? So teaching a patient that this is a flare-up and this is your baseline pain, these flare-ups will happen, and when we're successful at treatment, they'll be less often, they'll be less intense, and they'll be, uh, they won't last as long.
So getting that in a patient's head is really important so they can see that progress is happening even if they still have daily pain. And of course, uh, the zero to 10 scale might be one way to do it, but if you work with patients like our patients who are the eight out of 10 all the time, doesn't change ever. That's hard, where do you go with that? So ask instead perhaps about how pain interferes in your life. And I saw the PEG scale up in a former talk earlier this week, PEG. That's a nice simple scale you might want to incorporate into your practice. Um, it stands for you know, asking a question to the patient, how much does pain interfere? Uh, in your general activity, that's the G part, in your enjoyment in life, and then what's your intensity level of pain, that's the P, um, over the past two weeks, the intensity lowest, uh, average, and highest. So it's getting a, a broader picture over the past two weeks with interference as an element there. So that can help you guide where can we start, what's interfering the most, what have you lost the most, what might we want to talk about in terms of treatment planning. And then if you're not assessing the coping skills that might be an, an add-on you could think about because if it's not within your time frame to teach someone coping skills, maybe that's something you can have a conversation about. And I, and I just think like, you know, we talk about coping skills and pain management and maybe folks get a little turned off by that. Oh, that does sound like the, the, the psychology part of things. Um, what you're really asking is what do you do when you're in pain? Yeah. What do you do about that? What things do you, you know, seek out, resources, you know, do you go to bed? Do you get up and, you know, get some help from somebody? What do you do? So I think it's still important to assess, to get a sense of that. And also just want to mention about the, the zero to 10 scale. I also think it's, also, it's, it's interesting when people say eight, I'm always an eight, I'm always an eight, that gives you clinical information too because likely their pain does fluctuate in, in, and they are not tracking that particularly well. It's become difficult to track that. They aren't understanding the in different influences of um, contextual factors on their pain and that can be a treatment target. So I'm always an eight sounds like something we can work on in treatment. Mm -hmm. And the last point is not to be glossed over if you're not assessing your patient's expectations for a certain part of your care plan that will impact their outcomes. There is strong research in the meaning response realm, the placebo, nocebo, that tells us that what patients expect will factor in heavily to how well they do. So that could be a starting point. Ask what they expect to get out of treatment X, treatment Y, treatment Z, and then if they tell you, boy, pff, I don't think that's gonna help, don't refer over there, right? Even if you know the data is really sound and you'd love for them to do that, I would say, don't start there. If it were me, I wouldn't start. And there. you have a great story about this, and we even have time for it, so yes. go. <laughs> actually, it's interesting. It was just a week ago. Actually, I saw the, for the time when it really light turned on for me and for the patient. This is a uh, man in his 40s who had some heavy object fall and amputate tip of his finger. So he ended up, it was very painful to start with. The surgeon, uh, hand surgeon, uh, went to uh, do the uh, flap, skin flap to um, the close the wound. Uh, so actually, unfortunately, in the process, his uh, radial superficial nerve uh, uh, got uh, nibbed. So he has uh, three types of nerve pain. Remember, I told you there's usually more than one type of pain. He has a phantom pain, he has a stump pain, and then he also has a post-traumatic, in this case, surgical uh, neuropathic pain. Uh, and uh, again, he was, I mean, anything touching, and he was going through hand therapy, and. He just couldn't make a progress, and we did everything. He, by the time he came to see me, he already tried gabapentin and Lyrica uh, and Duloxetine. Uh, we, start, we started him on nortriptyline, uh, and um, uh, I mean, nothing was working. Actually, he was on hydrocodone, oxycodone, and he comes always very distressed, nothing works. 
and then one thing occurred to me, he, he keeps telling me like, how terrible his pain is and uh, that his pain is 15 out of 10. Then I realized like, there's a problem here. I, I turned to him and said, I know you have pain. That's not a question. The question is, what what we do for you does for you? Does it make any difference? Then it occurred to me that he had this monster on his hand. It's this terrible pain that's exploding and it's burning and aching, and he wants it to go away. The fact that the, some of the medications would have helped, and again, if you look at the trials, the best what gabapentin or duloxetine or any of the medications can do is bring the pain by 30%, not 100%. There's no, no treatment for neuropathic pain that's 100%. And I said, well, this is what we can do. This is what, I mean, if I had had the medication that will take your pain away, I would have given it to you first day. I wouldn't hold it back. And then he says, well, why don't we try gabapentin? <laughs> I mean, he realized, he remembered that gabapentin was doing something, but he didn't realize that, uh, I mean, when I explained to him, this is how much we can do. Let's, maybe with gabapentin we'll get the 30%, and maybe with the added deloxetine we'll get, knock off another 20%. Well, now you're as opposed to 15, now down to seven. Well, then you can deal with it and go to physical therapy. So that was a kind of story. I, and I think that expectations for pain treatment, assessing that goes hand in hand also with functional goals, that conversation. You know, what if treatment were successful, what would you be able to do that you can't do now or you have a hard time doing now or you'd like to be doing more of now? Um, and if you get, I want the pain gone, then we know we have unrealistic treatment expectations. Uh, if they're starting to talk about, oh, I'd like to be able to, you know, take a walk with my granddaughter okay, now we're un that person's moving a little bit more towards you know, understanding kind of functional changes are, are really what we're looking for in pain management. And then um, this is like exciting because it says mood and coping. That's the psychologist slide, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> but we were talking about this earlier. We were splitting up the slides and talking about which ones to do. We all ask all of these questions. Um, so just because I'm going to talk about the mood and coping, um, everybody should be asking these questions. Again, within your, your, your scope and your ability to do so, most people can ask uh, these questions. How does pain impact your mood? And then the reverse, how does mood impact your pain? And if someone looks at you like they've never heard of anything like that in their whole lives, that gives you an opportunity to teach them a little bit about that relationship between pain and mood, then it goes both ways. Um, talking about why they think they have pain that keeps going on for so long. What does it mean to them? Do they think it's changeable? Do they think it's you know, absolutely going to get worse? No question. You have to understand what the beliefs are that you're working with when you're getting started working with somebody. We want to assess things like lifestyle factors, you know, what's their nutrition like? And there's been some talks on that this, this week. Uh, how much caffeine do they uh, use? Tobacco use, uh, use of uh, drugs or alcohol, um, chemical coping. And we want to ask about their mood, feeling anxious, depressed, how are you feeling? Um, sometimes people have that in relationship to their pain. Sometimes that's pre-existing uh, mood, mood difficulties, but ask about that. Trauma history, you know, and um, understanding if they need any treatment uh, re related to their trauma history, because that can definitely impact someone's pain experience. I'm just going to add in here because yes. asking about trauma can be a scary, scary thing. Oh, yes. And how you do it can have a direct effect on the patient. 
So mm -hmm. I would I would tread waters with caution there if you're not working with a supportive integrative That's team. That's a great point. Because what do you do with that if you open up that trauma can and they're in your office and you go, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. actually, I don't know what to do. Actually, again, this is going <laughs> yeah. to the, building a team. Actually, um, uh, it, it's like in, in our, at our place, we do not have a, a PTSD specialist, but we actually have within a system, you know who, people who can do that. So yes, if you reach that point, and again, going back to the resources, either in your own institution or your community, mm -hmm. it's good to know who is the physical therapist, who is the PTSD specialist, mm -hmm. who is a good uh, hand therapist, and, uh, and, and so mm -hmm. on. Because uh, again, because at some point in time, it's more than likely one of your patients will need some of that, or if not all of it. And, oh, and I was just going to say, even though you know I'm I'm the psychologist on the team, and I certainly it's in within my scope to ask about trauma. I may only see that person once, so I'll even tread lightly, and I'll say something like, "I'm going to ask you a little bit about your history, um, and you know you can answer these questions or not. I just want to get a sense, uh, you know, if there's anything that traumatic, anything traumatic has ever happened to you. I give a few examples, and I say. And I want to be respectful of this. This may be our only meeting. I do want to open this up and not be able to take really good care of you. So I want to just ask about it in general and maybe not get into the details of it today, if that's okay with you. I preface that every time I ask mm -hmm. about trauma because if I'm only going to see them once and they kind of break down in my office and it brings a bunch of stuff up for them and I'm not able to sort of put them back together well before they leave, that's a bad experience for folks. But it's a very relevant topic mm -hmm. in, in pain management. Mm -hmm. And I often, uh, I'm very comfortable talking about trauma history because of where I work. PTSD is a coexisting diagnosis with most of our patients. Common, yeah. And I've had to learn that. But what I will say, and what I think is important here for the non-mental health providers is if there is no mental health support, if there are undiagnosed, uh, undiagnosed trauma-related problems for that person you're working with, you will have a limit to what you can do with that person if they aren't also getting trauma-informed care from a psychological aspect that may be outside your scope. So I have that direct conversation with patients who have diagnosed PTSD but have not engaged in care. And I can see that in their chart, and I've even asked patients who, whose chart isn't that clear. And I will directly say, look, here's what I can do for you, and here's what I can't. And if you don't get this other thing addressed, there will be a limit to what you and I can do together. That's just a fact of chronic pain and PTSD that coexist. So This is actually a good example of yeah. the aspects of transdisciplinary care because again yeah. it's engaging the patient it, 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 putting him in direction because it's absolutely correct what you Kate said if this is not addressed it will just not make much difference for many, many patients no. there's a question or comment there yes Yeah. I'm going to send you to my good colleague. <laughs> Fantastic. That's right. Excellent point. Yeah. Excellent point. That there's more and more, actually, in particular in, in mental health, uh, availability of telehealth. Yeah. And I'll just say, I'm, I'm not sure about the insurance coverage piece of it. I'm so really glad to hear that that's the case. But I will say that I use the same 
you know, uh, charge codes for in-person visits as I would if I were doing a telehealth visit when it's video. Uh, so if you're, if, in theory, it seems like if you're, if you're getting reimbursement for the, those, those types of services in person, that can also be done tele. So that's and, great. And actually some uh, healthcare systems are actually more and more engaging telehealth, everything from mental health sometimes to different like neurology or dermatology mm-hmm. uh, are actually done through telehealth. So it's good to know what to, uh, if you're a part of a healthcare system, does it provide and what it is. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, and then just to kind of finish this up, similar, any other psychiatric conditions, treatment, asking about suicidal ideation. Um, that's another thing that we get a little nervous about asking about. This is one I feel really strongly about, asking it and, and not avoiding it. You know, bringing it up to someone does not, you know, put that in their mind to think about or trigger it. Exactly. So, you know, tell me, you know, are you feeling hopeless? Um, are, you, are you feeling like you might harm yourself? You know, anything like that. Um, and, and get some information about that because we know that uh, suicidal ideation is common in folks who have persistent pain conditions. So ask about it. Yeah. What do you do with somebody who says, you know, and you say, you know, do you have any suicidal? Well, you know, I just, I really, I've thought of killing myself before, mm-hmm. but, but I really wouldn't do it. Yes. That is, that's probably the most common answer that I get because what you'll see for a lot of folks with chronic pain uh, is they have chron- they may have chronic suicidal ideation, but they may not be acutely suicidal. And so the, trying to make that distinction, finding out, so how often do you have the thoughts? Do you, uh, and this is a whole other lecture, but I'll just do it quickly. Uh, how often do you have the thoughts? Um, and, um, you know, do you have a plan? Do you have a, right, is there, do you plan to, do you have a means to carry out that plan? Do you have intent? Are you going to go do this? And if so, you need to help them access, you know, emergency psychiatric services if it's yes to those questions. If it's more like, I think about it, I'm not going to act on it. Well, why? Tell me a little bit about what keeps you safe. What's important in your life? What keeps you going? You want to hear about the kids. You want to hear about the hobbies. You want to hear about they want to see the next season of football. I mean, whatever's going on for them. Find out what's important to them. What are their protective factors? And keep an eye on those because suicidal ideation can change over time. And so we want to ask it, and we want to ask it with some frequency as a regular part of, of assessment. Everyone should be comfy with it. Yes, ask, ask. And they might not, they, you might not have it built into your template. So if someone throws that little bomb out, the grenade out into your visit, like, oh, well. I just don't know what I'd do. <laughs> if nobody figures out this pain for me. Ask what that means. What do you mean by <laughs> yeah. that? I just that don't know what I'll do. <clears throat> ask about that. Yeah, Okay. don't be afraid. Excellent. Misha. So again, uh, talking about the, the uh, how to put kind of in a way putting it together and so in terms of uh, uh, doing the uh, examination which we went through and then hopefully after vi- uh, finishing this uh, course this uh, afternoon you'll get more confidence knowing that things are pretty, pretty much at your hand it's just a matter of doing it right and uh, then also it's important to uh, put the, all these tests in the context of the whole p- picture of the patient and uh, so one thing that is re- really kind of uh, is the more to do this, the more you recognize that there are so many variables that can uh, change the way patients communicate about their pain. Even though it may be just you and the patient, the different things that can change in their life is how they deal with their pain and how they uh, cope. And, uh, and again, in particular, the interaction with different providers. All of that can kind of change, and so it's, when making that assessment, it's really important to put it all, uh, putting it all together. 
Mm -hmm. And I have a hard time personally believing the specificity tests and some of the orthopedic evaluations if we're not taking context into account because there's really solid evidence that the contextual factors will change someone's pain experience and therefore the positive or negative test on a, a shoulder crank test, for example. And uh, I mean, this is amazing to me that even within one evaluation, I can play around with contextual factors, factors and test one specific movement, spinal movement, for example, or a knee motion test or a hip, and someone else can test the same thing and get a very different result because my lights are low and I've prepared that person before approaching their body and putting my hands on them and because I've told them what to expect. And down the hall, the orthopedic, you know, they're running fast and they have a curtain and they have 10 people in the room and someone's screaming over there and then they do the same test and, and oh, the nervous system is backing away and freaking out. Well, that's going to give you a different result. So how much stock can we put in these orthopedic tests specifically if we're not considering the fuller picture? And I think that's important when we're making a clinical assessment because it might be very well that you pair an MRI finding with a clinical exam finding, and that might be sound evidence to make a referral. But what if that clinical exam finding is different the next day under different circumstances? Again, then what? Ex excellent point. <laughs> and, and again, this actually puts the, we can look at the, a different way to ask that question. Why do we, when we see the patient, they have different presentations? Mm -hmm. And we always blame it on a patient. Patient is not too relaxed, patient is too anxious, but actually the biggest source of variability is not the patient, it's us. Mm -hmm. And again, mm -hmm. th these excellent examples, as, as Kate mentioned, mm -hmm. is how we interact with the patient. Uh, and, and there's a whole host of, of uh, kind of factors that come in terms of interaction and uh, how patient is uh, actually interacting with you as, as well as you interacting with the patient can totally change the way body of the patient works and suddenly what you interpret will be very different. Mm -hmm. And we'll so. come back to that. And I'm just going to bring it back to the case example, this 45-year-old guy that didn't have much mental health diagnosis but a long history of pain which he didn't consider problematic but actually was problematic. Here are some details. Um, when we saw him, his chief complaint was lower back pain, the kind that we all see. Constant, didn't change, but he also had what he thought was a ridiculous pain down the whole left leg. And he would walk with a limp, a very profound limp, and he reported some feelings of instability, even though there was no muscle testing findings um, apparent. Um, and his previous function before that, picking up the piece of paper incident, he was very active, snowboarding, skiing, traveling, hiking, doing all sorts of things. And now he does not bend over. He did not bend over. I mean, you try to get him, and it just, not, like, mm -hmm. the body stopped him. And that's very common in what we see. And he had a really significant level of interference. He was getting help get with his ADLs on flare days. His girlfriend dressed him. And he had pulled back from all his social activities. And by the way, that, it, we missed it on the last slide, asking about religious and cultural um, background and understanding pain in the context of that. This gentleman um, uh, was in, uh, lived with his girlfriend and, and, and mom, and based on their cultural background, uh, it, was, it was the case that they really were in a very much a caretaking role with him, and he was very much someone they expected that he was going to keep you know, getting worse, and they needed to take care of him in that way. Um, so those kinds of things. What does pain mean in someone's family and their, in, 
in, in their culture. Mm -hmm. So this is something really important to point out. Right. So really again, there, I just talked about beliefs. Yes. And in particular for him, uh, he, when you ask him what was causing his pain to last for so long, he thought he had a back injury, he had scar tissue, uh, fibromyalgia, and quote, mental issues. Uh, and that he had the belief that if he fell, he would blow a disc. So now that's kind of explaining a little bit of the stiffness and the, and the fear about movement. And he also thought, thought if he, he really wanted to go swimming and he wanted to exercise in the pool, but he thought if he got in the pool and his back gave out, he would drown. So very fearful about that. Uh, and in terms of how, uh, yes, it was, and, and um, in terms of his coping, again, he was taught core exercises. He was doing those, but then he would have, do those and he'd have more pain. Um, then he would avoid physical activity, kind of bouncing between activity and avoidance mm -hmm. uh, and having very disruptive levels of, of pain flares. And then, as, as Kate mentioned, just avoiding bending altogether if would possible. Would you ask this guy how he gets around at home? Oh, fine. I do my chores. Yeah. Oh, I, I get things done. I just kind yeah. of figure out workarounds. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, just to, again, yeah. this is not this. Uh, there's no survey slide. But quick question, by raise of hand, how many of you we have seen in, when you examine the patients? I don't know how many of your clinicians, but those who do, how often can you say like, "Huh, this patient has a fear of avoidance"? Is that obvious? I mean, after, after you've seen it a few times, yeah. it's really clear. I mean, the person goes and they just freeze us. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, and as I say, it's very real problems. And I couldn't even finish a physical exam. I tried doing different contextual, different positions, laying him on his side and ask him to do a knee to chest. It's a sneaky way of getting lumbar flexion in there without him knowing. I see him testing your hip now, right? And he couldn't do that. I mean, he, his whole body was rigid with guarding. I get close to him and he just would, and he, it wasn't, didn't apparently look voluntary. <laughs> And then, and just a little bit about the mood was really interesting. Now, he told us that he thought he had something like OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, mm -hmm. um, because of um, a pattern of behavior throughout the month. For several days of the month, he would engage in like rearranging and cleaning and rearranging and rearranging the house until he ended up in a pain flare uh, and then had to stop. So we thought, ooh, it might be some type of compulsive condition there. Uh, and, um, and, but did, denied, we asked, see, we asked, and uh, he denied suicidal ideation. So that was what he was thinking might be going on for him. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, there are things to consider. Yes, just and again, in this patient, there's just kind of a summary slide to kind of read through this. I mean, he presented with history of uh, uh, back pain, with history of surgery uh, on his spine, uh, and, and again, uh, a lot of times we think, kind of run to the problem and try to solve it, but just stopping and thinking for a second that a person could have a low back pain just because of simple muscle sprain, could be simple and mild, all the way to somebody who has a really complex uh, problem, like somebody who has a, not only diabetic painful neuropathy, but also has a concomitant congestive heart failure, <laughs> renal failure, and so on. So all of these are the factors that have to be considered from medical morbidity and comorbidities. And from mental health, somebody could have a little bit of <coughs> anxiety and a little bit of insomnia, which could be mild uh, and simple, and all the way to the, somebody who has a, uh, anxiety, uh, paralyzing anxiety, uh, as well as anxiety and depression and bipolar. <laughs> Things can snowball pretty quickly. Uh, and then talking about the pain mechanisms, it could be plain and simple, like a, uh, simple nociceptive uh, pain as mm -hmm. opposed to Many patients, as I mentioned uh, to you, uh, when they become patients that come to us with a chronic pain problem, they usually have more than one. So yeah. it becomes multiple and complex yeah. and severe. 
which we hope would inform a treatment plan. So what did this guy look like? On clinical exam, he had, we did an, I did a normal, I did the whole uh, physical exam for this one. Um, Neuroscreen wasn't concerning. I mean, that one red flag question, but then I dig deeper and it's really loose stool. And he had GI history, right? Uh, and reflexes, he couldn't get either of them. He was so stiff and none of my tricks worked to, to get the uh, reflexes that day. That changed later on. Um, but neurological exam, right? So dull in both of his feet. And he had a diagnosis of peripheral neuropathy. He told me that he tripped and fell and almost fell a lot, um, but didn't actually fall when I got specific in questioning him <laughs> in a fall screen. And he passed all the fall screening tests that I know how to do. And I feel like that kind of goes along with the fear avoidance. We have people yeah. that are really fearful of yeah. falling and talk about falling and not necessarily don't actually, are actually falling. Yeah. No. Um, he, I couldn't even finish a strength exam for him. But, you know, just the amount of resistance I got from all the muscle guarding, I was not concerned about focal weakness or loss of function or no, no atrophy, none of that. Um, and he was very antalgic when he was walking down the hall. I'd do a six-minute walk test on everybody, even though it's not a cardiac clinic. <laughs> because it's more about endurance and, and flare patterns. And by the end, he was limping and wanted to stop really badly. And uh, that was very different after treatment. So I checked some capillary refill because of some of the neurologic screening that I got from him. So what are we thinking so far with the clinical evidence that we have and the subjective history? Just think about what you would say, and you can use your pull feature, Is there a primary? So we just mentioned how there could be a blend, but would you consider one of these more dominant than the others based on the information you have? Ten more seconds. No, they got, they, they got this one. I can tell. <laughs> All right. Nociplastic as primary. And, yeah, so neuropathic as a primary feature. It's interesting to talk about because there is some overlap in the clinical features. And by the way, these clinical mechanism categories came from a Delphi study that was published in 2010. Keith Smart's the primary author on that. There's a group of people who put out a series of papers to explain nociceptive, neuropathic, and Central sensitization was termed in those papers. So if you're interested in learning more, that's a great series to look at. There's a question. Yeah. I think uh, that probably why the nociplastic was answered more frequently, it was because in your clinical history and your examination, yeah. you failed to mention that you didn't have to worry anything about the upper part of the body and the strengthening, but everything that you did, it was lower part of the body. Great point. Couldn't do a full lumbar spine exam because he was too guarded. Couldn't do that, visit number so one. I assume that he was having pain from, from the top of his head. He, all the way he did identify as having widespread pain, uh, but his primary location that concerned him. Exactly. But right. When I examined the patient, I see. his reflexes in his arms were good, his strength in his arms were right. good, his neck Case is same for him. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for mentioning that. Didn't have room for everything that we do on the slide, which I had to highlight. That's an absolutely important point because upper motor neuron impairment is an important thing to screen for if you have any worries about that, if someone's reporting instability with walking. Absolutely. 
Uh, okay, good. How about... You're on. Oh, that's mine. <laughs> right. So uh, try this one out. Which of these mood elements might impact the clinical presentation? You may choose multiple answers. <laughs> Fear-based avoidance of activities, fear of pain flares, social isolation, poor expectation, expectations for treatment. Go ahead and choose which ones you think would impact the clinical presentation for this patient. Okay. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. I so, agree. yeah, we talked. <laughs> all of them. Yes, all of them apply in this case. Uh, fear-based <laughs> avoidance of activities. Of course, we talked a lot about that in 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 uh, in, in the presentation. Uh, and um, he also had a fear of, of pain flares. Uh, was overdoing it and then underdoing it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, social isolation was not getting out very much, and poor expectations for treatment. Mm-hmm. So then the question is, how would that information inform your assessment if you put the pieces together, that piece of the puzzle? When you're writing up your evaluation from visit number one, taking those factors into account, how does that change your treatment plan? Does it change what you think is primary? The answer can be no, but I'm curious. And you can use the poll function if you'd like. So it was a mix, and I think Nociplastic was the winner for primary on the first mm-hmm, round. It was. And if anyone reconsidered, we'll see if that happened here. No. Ooh. <laughs> More people. Yes. Yes. So <laughs> excellent. So we're going to come back around to um, to what we thought. I thought there was no, a slide it's for the that. Next one. Oh, see, I've got yeah. this all mixed up. We'll click it. You'll oh, see what click happens. It. It's right there. Look. <laughs> That's what we <All> right. thought. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I would say there's an argument to be made for some neuropathic component because there were areas that were insensate, but I didn't trust this guy's reporting either. And by the end of treatment, um, there was still one little area that he would describe as insensate, but when he first was evaluated, it was a broader, more kind of diffuse region in the lower leg. But I agree, that's, that's what drove my clinical reasoning at first, um, along with a very clear mechanistic reproducible forward bend got him every single time in his experience, um, and uh, all the other things that would factor into use of the spine, and especially if it had to do with flexion. So in terms of the treatment, again, we're not here to present our, our treatment program today, but just so you know what kind of treatment this, this gentleman got, 12 weeks of team-based treatment included cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, mindfulness training, lots and lots of pain education. Uh, do you want to talk about the last, what, the, what those terms mean? Myth, I sure will. I know the myth-busting, I will talk about that because at the end of That's treatment, we always wrap up with people and we, uh, we ask for their feedback. And he said there was this one day, Kate, this one day in class. You remember that day? And I did. I knew exactly what he was talking about. Uh, part of what I bring to a curriculum in the, in the um, movement component for patients who work with us is we do a body mechanics class, but classic body mechanics instruction is move the right way, right? Don't move the wrong way. Yeah, because if you move the wrong way... It's fear-inducing, right? Something bad so there's a lot of good spinal, neutral spine movement training that goes on in the world, and that, in my, uh, in my work, does not play a factor at all. We do not do good versus bad. We say what options are gone right now, which options can we put back, 
And with myth busting, what we do a lot is talk about what does the data say about protective behaviors in the workforce, right? Lumbar braces and you lifting with your legs and not with your back and being really strict about all that stuff ergonomically. Well, it turns out that doesn't prevent injury or chronic pain in large population studies, does not. So we spend a lot of time on this and what we might actually be doing is harming someone's ultimate sense of self-efficacy and, and feed them into a fear avoidance pattern because they're riddled with don't do, don't do, it's dangerous if I do and I'm gonna blow a disc, right? So we do a lot of myth busting and that day, well, the, the body mechanics class, I asked this patient whether he'd be interested in coming up and trying a different way of picking up an empty garbage can off the floor. And I didn't understand how much it impacted him because he's a, he's a grinner. He just grins through life and suffers behind this curtain of a grin. Mm -hmm. I didn't know. And yet that moment of re-experiencing movement in a safe way and being applauded, everyone in the group applauded when he bent over to pick that up. I think that was a formative experience for him. And that changed everything. And right from that day, he continued to challenge himself and do more in the movement classes and do more at home. And by the end, uh, I mean, he was like back to himself. It was mm -hmm. pretty interesting. Yeah. You want to talk about it? Yep. Small group, class based. Yeah. Eight, eight to 10. Mm hmm. So, oh, and, yeah. and I think you mentioned that. That's, that's, that's the basis of self efficacy is challenging those movements um, and learning that things can be done. You can do things differently and, and it doesn't have to be punishing. And then you yeah. can do more of those things for yourself. Yeah. yeah. And I'll do things like ask a person how much. Can you bend forward before you get worried about it or you, you worry about a pain flare? And what are you willing to do? What, what is tolerable for you and can you practice that at home? And movement experiments, that just means we try to find different ways, uh, kind of hmm, trick patients into doing something that mm -hmm. they categorize as bad and negative. For example, if they're bending forward to pick something up off the floor and I say, okay, can you sit down on a bucket? Now can you put your nose in a the bucket there, and there you are bent over. Look at that, right? And it sometimes works that simply. <laughs> Using a different movement pattern because the way our brain and movement uh, programs work, for lack of a better term, there are these really ingrained um, apprehensions that just thinking about bending forward will cause this guarding to kick in. And if we have a different way of getting to the same position, it's less threatening and the body will do it better. So we do this kind of stuff in the work together and uh, it can be pretty profound and it's not that hard to do. Yeah. And another th thing that a lot of times you was to tell the patients, we meaning clinicians, what uh, a few things to do. And the, right away the, it's like a ping pong, boom, I can't do that. Uh, and so actually a lot of times what I find helpful is to turn the discussion. It's not, it doesn't matter what you cannot do. Let's put it to the side. Ooh. But let's see what you can do. Yeah and start to build on that. And when a person will say, well, I cannot walk. Well, can you walk to the bathroom? Yeah, well, can you walk the, the city block? Yes. Well, so let's build on that. It's not what you cannot do, but if you can walk a city block without a bad pain flare up, let's go walk every day, next six days, seven days, uh, twice a day and without a flare up. So next week we'll do block and a, and a 10 feet. Yeah. So kind of do the progressive way so not to kind of make people like, well, we need you to go to physical therapy and you'll be running a marathon next week. Like, so I mean, it's, it's a way to really get the patients to, to feel comfortable that the, the 
to build and work from what they can do rather than keep coming always back cannot do. And, and I just want to like point out that that's part of like kind of helping them move again but it's also part of like what we would do in psychology called cognitive restructuring exactly. which is thinking about <laughs> it differently and saying yeah. well it's, if, you, if you can get up and move then you don't say I can't walk then you say I, I have difficulty with walking I can only walk so far exactly. at this time mm-hmm. so that's part of changing those thoughts so we're all doing that work mm-hmm. great oh. oh and this is what happened right. here's how he did yeah Oh, so uh, how did you do? Oh, you did really well, <laughs> is really what happened. Uh, he, first of all, this OCD issue was not really OCD. Did not need a referral for that. No longer need any treatment for that. My hypothesis is this, this cleaning and doing a bunch of stuff and then dropping off and not doing it, I think it was probably pain behaviors. You know, and feeling bad about not being able to do things, getting, you know, taking, being taken care of by the family, and, and then feeling bad about that, and then overdoing, and then ending up in a flare and not being able to do it. So once we address the pain issue, that anxiety, or compulsive type, you know, behavior that that uh, resolved on its own. Uh, did continue to get treatment for depression. Do you want to talk about the functional gains? Yeah. yeah. So, best news ever, he got back in the water. He went swimming. He was swimming daily, and he credited the daily swimming. He did that uh, a week after the day in class with me, right? And he did it continuously and went at his own pace and progressively did more and more. So by the end, which was about six weeks later. Um, he was do- he was walking and bending freely and no more limp and he had booked himself a trip around the world. And actually, w- w- access know. to pool is actually <laughs> is one of the most common prescription I make to my patient with the musculoskeletal pain is to get in a pool because mm-hmm. it relieves the weight bearing exacerbations of the pain. It kind of makes them move and get kind of body mechanics working. Uh, and again, as a resource, talking about the barriers. Uh, you don't have to have a big swimming pool next door, but many communities have a high school where which have uh, open nights for public uh, YMCA's and th- 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 different kind of facilities. So all those barriers barriers could be uh, kind of overcome with just a little bit of effort. We'll have a debate next year about pool well, therapy, it's, right? For chronic pain, the context also changes yeah, in the I pool, which is great. Yes. <laughs> Good. <laughs> all right. So here's the key, though. He he did identify as still having pain all over his body. Um, and he still had flares, but they were not disruptive. He could plan his life. He could carry out those plans and st- stick to the commitments. And he was just so happy. And, and what was interesting is the smile mask went away. Yeah. He smiled when he meant it. Yeah. yeah. I would love to know that. <laughs> he did really well in business before he started yeah, working. Yeah, I think so. Wasn't. No, no, no. It was exciting, though. It was because he, would, he didn't want to take long car trips. He didn't let alone a plane trip across yeah. the world. Yeah. Right? That got, was really exciting. We got one more question here. Yeah. I know you're focused on the medication management, so do you have an idea of how many medications do you have at the end of the day? I think that he was actually... He was, I think he was pretty much on minimal, me- I think we I mentioned he was just on Tylenol, on. but he was actually on minimal medications, I think, before, and yeah. then that continued after. Yeah, them. he tried a lot of things. Tylenol. And gabapentin, okay. Tylenol. No opioids in the past two years, he had yeah. come off of those, but yeah. those were part of his So not, not as complex a, medi- a medication picture as sometimes mm-hmm. we'll see. Yeah. And we, we work with a pharmacist who is very clear on minimizing the role of pharmaceuticals. Yeah. And she... You know, we'll support any goals that a patient will have. We we are not in the business of tapering people. That's not what we do in our program. But if they ask, we will help them. Yeah. We had another <laughs> yeah. comment over here. What period of time is this that this gentleman had 
between the injury time and the time that he more or less left? And number two, what kind of insurance did he have? Mm-hmm. So it was a year before he came to see us uh, that he had the picking up the piece of paper. But 10 years prior, he had had a spine surgery for pain. Right. Um, yeah. No, one year of being disabled or not able to do, one year. Mm-hmm. 10 years of episodic pain and some periods of inability to do things related to that, but he didn't call it problematic. No, really, was he in your therapy? 12, 12 weeks. weeks. And then the other question is insurance, and we have the luxury of not having to work with insurance. We're at the VA, so I do. I know I that's know, a tough that's one. That's hard. Yeah. But, yeah, there are questions, yes. But I bet audience members would but, have ideas but I would, how to network and figure and out. I would, and, you know, we hesitate a little bit about presenting this case because I, I, we're not talking about our treatment program, which we're very proud about. And if anyone wants to stay back and talk with us about it, we'll tell you all about it. <laughs> but it's... Um, what this, what we wanted to really emphasize was the assessment part of it, and that then we had these various treatments that you could also put together, you know, in the community. Those things are also, like you mentioned, there's there's things that can be done in the community. He happened to go through our program, but that's yeah. Um, we get great outcomes without that. Yeah. There were a couple questions in the back first. Oh, in the all back. the way in the back. In terms of mechanisms. Uh, lumbago. <laughs> it's not a diagnosis, it's a region, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, the, for coding, so it's, it's important to remember that chronic low back pain is very often not directly linked to a very specific uh, disease process, very often not. can be, it's important to screen and test and reassess and reevaluate all the time, but the vast majority have normal, healthy, functioning spines, even with some concomitant DJD that's normal age-related change on the inside, right? And he had a history of um, a laminectomy. So there were some yeah. surgical changes if you were to do a scan. Uh, so my diagnosis, working physical therapy diagnosis, is difficulty walking and back pain. Mm-hmm. And those are, the, those are the treatment codes that I selected when I was putting in charge codes. And, de- and depression. And is somebody probably, I didn't put that in. I, I don't charge that, for depression. I did. And is somebody who would, <laughs> who would put the hands and examine this patient, I mean, as I say, I see these patients like day in and day out. Uh, most often, uh, the patient, patient like this would probably have a, a poor segmental mobility when you do palpation over the uh, spinal segments. Yeah. He will jump off the table. <clears throat> so this would be a, a form of osteoarthritis type of pain. Uh, if you want to put it in a bucket, but like would we? But I wouldn't do that. Oh, I'm going to walk over there. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's important. I, I don't mean to be disrespectful. It's important, though, because if we pathologize that into a segmental thing, this patient at the end of six weeks was bending over to pick up his bag off the floor without any trouble, right? It was not this underlying restrictive impairment. It was related to a lot of other things, at least in his case. I'm not saying that's every case. But I am hesitant to label something, this is an, a specific problem with this specific joint because of these factors right. he could have been. Say, you can go into details yeah. and find it out. But putting uh, it, and going back to those, yeah, remember yeah. That, that there is a spectrum of mild, simple and mild all the way to uh, mm-hmm. complex. And uh, this is where you have to kind of make these decisions. Yeah. So he might have had a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Yeah. But most important is the putting it together, that he was actually, uh, again, they had no benefit of seeing this patient. This is the conditioned back with fear avoidance. 
And, and you tried a bunch of things. And I just have to say, yeah. what you just saw here is exactly what you want to be doing. These folks <laughs> don't work together every day. They don't even live in the same state. Uh, <laughs> but that's the kind of back and forth and discussion and, yeah. and yes. thinking about and coming to these conclusions that, that we can all do with each other, regardless if we work on a you know yes. clearly defined team or not. And could manotherapy have helped him? Sure. I don't have the luxury of doing that. We don't have access to that either where I work. But he didn't need it, right? He, he did fine getting back to his life once we figured out how. And I, frankly, didn't even know the moment that was happening. He told me after the fact. So my job, I think, is to help people address their fears and identify what the reasons are that they're not moving. Because movement is the best medicine for any joint. Anything that needs uh, help needs movement, right? Anybody in acute care, early mobilization is part of the deal now. You can, you can be in a coma, and we're getting you up to move in physical therapy. And right? movement is good movement for your mood. Movement is important and great for your mood. So, in in, in yeah. any form of exercise, they get people, again, yeah. what Kate was talking about, the body awareness, being able to move. And so whatever it takes, I mean, one of the most common recommendations in my practice is Tai Chi. Uh, and there's actually right. an, an our sc screen of screen? my a computer, there's a Tai Chi for seniors, the Tai Chi for arthritis. Actually, there's a Tai Chi in a chair. I mean, it's a slow, continuous movement, and there's really no mm -hmm. jumping, kicking, mm -hmm. marathon running. It's just, but the whole point is to get the person to mm -hmm. move, and, and it's something that's simple. And I think we had one more comment, and then we have to, or two, maybe two more, one more comment, yeah. Um, so the payer thing kind of worked for the Thank you for right. saying that, because sometimes we want to like hide and go, well, you're not from the VA. Because I know that it's a, it is a little, it little is somewhat easier, but that doesn't mean you should throw your hands up in the air and go, uh, we just can't do it at all. Yeah. You mentioned the 12-week program. Mm -hmm. What are the frequency of Three times a week. I see people twice a week in that. Yeah. I don't know how many clinics do this, but a lot of interdisciplinary clinics will prompt the lodging for patients who are out of, you know, Interesting. Oh, great. I'd great to learn, learn about that. Yeah. Oh, we have one more. One more comment over there. Oh, no. Oh, no. We have no? Okay. Got it? Yeah, we have questions. Okay, we're going on to slides. We have just a few more things to wrap up. So, oh, no. Uh, yeah, so this one is 0 to 10. How much do you value team approaches to, to pain care? Not how accessible. Right. <laughs> how, much how much do you, do you value? value? <laughs> right. <laughs> got to value it first and then you can go out and look for it yeah okay because I consult with psychologists outside the VA from time mm -hmm. to time and I consult with physical therapists who are not in our system and don't feel comfortable treating chronic pain but I do so I help them out right. there are ways to make this so um, do you value yes or no how much Ooh, yay. oh yeah good that was obvious I kind good. of you know we hope it's a plan okay. question um, and I'm interested for those who Oh, it's, never mind. It's above five. It's above five. Uh, what now. if you don't have a team? What we've talked a little bit about this, and some of you have thrown out some really great ideas about how to how to do this. You want to talk about if you don't have a team, what do you do? Nick, I'm going to put you on the spot. How about this one? <coughs> Top bullet. Yeah, I do go to a lot of the offices in town. Um, I get 
you know, we talk about patients. Typically, once there's a patient to talk about, that's when it really helps. Like uh, my primary, uh, my longest primary referral source when I opened up my practice is I went over there and said, hey, we did cranial nerve exam. This is what I found in reflex testing. This is what I found. What do you think about a brain and cervical MRI due to these findings? You know, and it's something like that. Then, yeah, text me about it later. Mm -hmm. You know, and once we're, most of us have our, you know, unless there's some type of setting where, you know, security, we can't have our phone. Most of us can check our phones throughout the day. Um, and then, you know, pain management specialist down the road. You know, what do we think about an injection for this? You know, it seems to be inflammatory. It has responded to my first few treatment sessions. You know, then coming back. Um, so you started with a patient that you knew that other provider had in common with you. Right. Talk about that person that's, that's versus. Versus, hey, do you want to talk about what? We all want to get our patients better. We don't yeah. want the patient come back saying they're not better. Yeah. And they don't know what to do and you don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. um, another one with the counselor in town, we, we created a document uh, about what she does and what we do, what we do, because she likes treating pain as well. Mm -hmm. um, and that way they could see that we, you know, it's not just somebody down the road, mm -hmm. but this is what we do. This, there's some overlap, but there's some definite, um, definitive things we can hand it to the patients. So they know that there's coordinated care. Common treatment philosophy, really important. So I, if anyone heard me talk yesterday, it, it is problematic if you come from different places in what causes someone's pain. It's not going to help very much if I'm telling you it's fine to move and someone else says, don't you dare, you'll break yourself. Right. Right? That's a problem. And, we ha and, and it's not always a surmountable problem. So, you know, I've tried to forge relationships with some professionals where I work as well, and it, it's a dead end sometimes. So find your friends and keep them. And sometimes it's uh, easier than other times to find them. But if you have a success story, that referral will get stronger and that bond will get stronger and your network can grow with uh, support of everyone else. Yeah. Something that's really helpful uh, is to learn the language mm -hmm. of the other mm -hmm. person that you're talking Excellent. to. Excellent. Um, because an, as an occupational therapy practitioner, when I go talk to a doctor and a nurse practitioner, their language is very different than mm -hmm. the language I use, even mm -hmm. though we're talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I really had to challenge myself to grow. Mm -hmm. So think about that. If there's a disconnect, think about the language being used and how you can that's mm -hmm. exactly the purpose of this session. <laughs> we, we really wanted to kind of be sure that we communicate and understand the terms. But it extends to other things. Like if your patient tells you, I went and had this treatment done, do you know what that treatment is? Could you go and ask your pain provider down the road, can I sit in on one of your ablations, please? Can I see what goes on there? So I know what my patients are talking about. You know, we do this in our formal education, but for some of us, it might be 20, 30 years ago. We might need a refresher. We might need to understand, you know, how, how things are different now or something we never knew we didn't know. <laughs> now exactly. your patient's telling you this. Like, what's prolotherapy? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. and, and reach out to, you know, uh, their mental health providers, too. They may have existing mental health providers or counselors do that. Just a little tip. Um, a lot of times, you know, medical pro providers don't necessarily have to have a release of information. Mental health providers often will, re will require that. So if you're not getting that call back because you think, oh, they just don't like me and don't want to call me back, get a release of information, find out how to fax it over to them. They're more likely to call back confidentiality. It's really important in mental health, so they're very careful about it. Mm -hmm. uh, but find out what they're doing. Again, common treatment philosophy is important. If someone goes to a, an existing mental health counselor who doesn't know about pain management and you're telling them, you know, really got to get out and start moving 
more and doing more things and they're going to supportive therapy for the last you know many years mm-hmm. and that counselor saying boy it's really hard for you I know you know if you have to stay in bed that's okay they don't know necessarily that they're mm-hmm. not helping reinforce the message if you can let them know what message you're trying to get across the patient they can help reinforce that mm-hmm. too because we important part absolutely yeah Again, going back to the talking about the Again, that's a way to engage the patient because if they hear it from more than one person, mm-hmm. and maybe in different ways, but the, the, the message is, again, uh, the, most of the time, this being a good example, where it's really pa- getting the patient engaged to overcome the fear to move. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's sim- something as simple now <laughs> when we can say at the end of the, the case, but it took 12 weeks and mm-hmm. it took so many people. And again, we have a benefit, three of us, to work in multidisciplinary uh, uh, with working with the team and just would encourage everybody else, there are benefits. And mm-hmm. that question, well, you have a team, but how do I build a team? And again, mm-hmm. it takes time. It takes mm-hmm. the communication and interaction with different people. And in the teams, people click or don't. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We have two very important slides left. Okay, I mean, let's, yes, um, let's, left. let's finish are, those up. These are really important for us because we want to know what you got out of this and we want to know what you know, might be lacking. can help with conference organization next year. Um, so if you could tap into the live poll two more times. That would be great. So the question is, how much will you change your framework for understanding chronic pain based on our talk today? We will not take anything personally. Swear. It's anonymous. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to show the results. Excellent. Excellent. I don't think anyone should change any, all the things all the time. Sometimes it's not possible. But that's great. And maybe... There's a lot of people who are working in teams here, too. So that's... Uh, yeah, you know, interesting. Interesting. And, and doing... Next question. Time. Last question. How much will this presentation challenge the way you practice? And that doesn't necessarily mean how you network with your community, but you yourself. What you're going to say... In, in the office next mm-hmm. week when you're talking to somebody. Did we identify some gaps for you? Did we inspire you? Did we say, uh, forget, I'm just going to keep referring the way I always do. Totally fine. Ready? Here we go. Same as before. Same. Same. Good. But, you know, three, 70% of people will change some things. That's fantastic. If I get person, people in my office to learn 10% of what I teach, Fantastic. And again, is in the follow-up. If you have any feedback for us as to what was good, what was lacking, what we need more, uh, we would actually be planning to do this next year, so your feedback would be appreciated. Summary slide, you can read. I think it's always important to use critical thinking skills, and clinical reasoning requires some critical thinking skills. It also requires time. So I do not often get to do a full assessment evaluation in one visit. I usually spread it over two visits. So that's allowable in our charge uh, laws, our charge code laws for physical therapy. We can do an evaluation code spread over two visits. You might have to do that. But clinical reasoning requires a bit of data, a bit of evidence to prove yourself wrong, what your theory says, and then what evidence do you have to back it up? Do your exam findings change in different contexts? that sort of thing. Um, And we certainly can have better outcomes with transdisciplinary approaches. It doesn't mean we have to work in the same building and next door to each other. There can be lots of examples of this. And I would encourage everyone to share ideas and figure out how to support that transition because, you know, 
we're not going to suddenly drop VAs everywhere, nor do I want that. Uh, but, you know, it's important to think about how can we support patients the best because the evidence we have says multidisciplinary is better than single disciplinary and interdisciplinary is better than multidisciplinary and transdisciplinary probably works the best. So how can we facilitate that? Every patient is different. It's a unique uh, nervous system in front of you. And again, so maybe every once in a while I take this opportunity to make a little uh, kind of, again, linguistic uh, kind of thought experiment. If I say subjective, mm. if what's your first reaction? It's not objective. And a lot of times you say the pain is subjective. And a lot of times conversation stops. But if you say the pain is person-specific, mm -hmm. saying the same thing. But you change a totally perspective on mm -hmm. how you communicate about this. Because you're not kind of uh, uh, put, forcing it against something that's not objective, it's not real. It's person-specific, and it's specific because of physical uh, causes and psychological, so, uh, social causes. So again, it's just a way of communicating to, to again, enhance the communication rather than uh, minimize the communication. Thank you very much for your attention. It's a long time to sit, so.